following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continue studying the Gospel of John together. Started chapter 4 last time and went through verse 15. One of the lengthiest and most involved individual discussions of Jesus in any of the Gospels is this conversation with the Samaritan woman in the province of Samaria, a woman who was of no great reputation, in fact, someone that people just didn't really want to associate with. Jesus engaged at the well, asked for a drink. Last time we saw the conversation proceed to the point that she was asking him for a drink. Give me this living water. She might have said whatever it is. She didn't know what it was, but she wanted what it was Jesus was offering. And many would say that was the beginning of her turn towards him in conversion. We see the conversation continue today, beginning in verse 16. And it actually gets shunted off onto a siding, you might say, as she uh, does that, but brings an important subject into the picture, the subject of worship. And then it will return again next time, Lord willing, we'll see the full circle conversion of this woman. Listen as I read John four, sixteen through 26. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. This is God's holy word. In just about any discussion about Christian worship these days, the battle lines get drawn pretty quickly. There are many different kinds of skirmishes over worship in the church. One of those occurs between those who see the requirement of worship as mainly the kind of doctrine that we would have. We have got to adhere, of course, to biblical teaching. 
We Presbyterians are at least direct heirs of the Reformation and the Puritans who emphasize this sort of thing, and we tend to be in their camp, and therefore we are devoted to getting Bible facts right, and sometimes we deserve to be called what we are called, the frozen chosen. Other Christians tell us, no, you people put too much emphasis on doctrine. What we need is passionate sincerity, lively music, folks moving about, responsiveness, spontaneity, feelings, liveliness. Get rid of some of your dry doctrine. Sadly, there are two extremes that develop here in various ways. One group rather restrained, the other group more expressive. Our tradition can seem to some people like uh, almost an entirely intellectual exercise that is wary of strong feeling. At the other extreme is exuberant spontaneity that ignores good order and ignores reverence. And so the worship wars wage on. I sat in on a Sunday school class this morning and heard of one of our elders giving an excellent historical analysis of what is called the Second Great Awakening, where Presbyterian evangelists were used greatly of God in various areas of our country to sponsor evangelism and church growth, many, many conversions, hundreds of thousands of them. And yet, interestingly, some of the opposition to the Second Great Awakening came from, guess what, other Presbyterians who said, we don't want people crying in church. We don't want this rise of enthusiasm. We don't trust this. It's not good decorum. And they managed to serve in many cases as a very wet blanket on that revival, although the revival did have great effects. I ask you if we must always stand on one side of that worship divide or the other. Isn't it possible that there could be people on either side who could be ignorant of what they're saying? who could set their worship standards and expectations primarily in ignorance. Because if we would be able to lay aside our personal and denominational bias and look at Scripture, we'd find Jesus teaching that true worship is not this side or that side. It's a marriage of deep heart expression responding to the gospel and careful, biblical, doctrinal understanding. It is not one or the other. And any divorce between these two things is a false dichotomy that does not please God. It is not the worship that He seeks. Now, I would say to you, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that John 4.24 is possibly the most important single statement about worship in the entire New Testament. And it's so interesting that it is raised at all and and is stated by Jesus in the first place uh, because of a side path or a digression in the conversation with this woman. They didn't set out to talk about worship, but she took the discussion there. And so it occasioned Jesus to make this statement, God is spirit. They that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is Jesus Christ who himself is the central, preeminent recipient of worship toward God, 
who is telling us what God wants in worship, how to do it. And it came in this discussion with a nameless woman at the well of Samaria. Last time we saw the woman come to kind of a critical point, she was more or less sparring with Jesus at first, and he came and asked her for a drink. Well, why do you, a Jew, talk to me, and so on, and, and if you knew who was talking to you, and, and then he talked about living water, and she was sarcastic about that and said, well, wh- what is that? And, and then she finally asked for it and said, give this to me. And at least she was opening up and saying he had something to offer that she wanted. Well, Jesus wanted to engage her further at the point of repentance. He knew that the first way she needed to come to God was to see the truth about her life. So he asked to meet her husband. I have no husband. I know that. You've had five, and you're living with a man now who's not your husband. Well, this took it to another level. Sir, you must be a prophet. Only prophets could figure out things like that. But then you see he had gotten a little bit too close, I think. And the discussion wasn't comfortable. She didn't want to go on with this home life discussion with somebody who apparently knew all about her. So she diverted, oh, you're a prophet. Well, let's talk about this ages-old discussion of which mountain is the right one to worship on. Mount Gerizim in my territory where there used to be an alternative temple or in Jerusalem where the authorized temple is. I'm sure as a prophet you'd like to discuss that with me. Well, a lot could be said to describe these two kinds of worship, Jerusalem worship and Mount Gerizim worship. Mount Gerizim might loosely be characterized as the early Pentecostals. They only had a part of the Old Testament. They only accepted the first five books of Moses. Just think, if you took the Old Testament and cut off everything after the first five books and didn't accept it, you'd have a very truncated Bible, wouldn't you? But that's all they accepted. Their worship was characterized by warm feeling and excitement. Jerusalem, on the other hand, of course, had the the entirety of the Old Testament, a full revelation. And honestly, I think at the time of Jesus, we could generalize at least that worship in Jerusalem was generally following accepted patterns, going through motions, but not an awful lot of deep feeling or deep devotion to God. One writer says Jerusalem had the truth with a cold spirit. Samaria had a warm spirit, but little truth. That's a pretty good summary, actually. Well, here Jesus rather bluntly, and you might even say rudely, tells this woman, you worship what you don't even know. You're ignorant as far as worship is concerned. That isn't very complimentary. Dare we stand up today and say there's a lot of ignorance going on in the way worship is designed in our churches across our land? One of the amazing phenomena to me, right? I don't care what denomination you see it in, Presbyterian churches do it like others sometimes, is to go into a service and see the opening of it designated worship. Worship. So for a half an hour, you sing songs and sway and and generate, you know, a, a strong emotional feeling. That's worship. Draw the line. Next section, teaching. Now, I assume we're being told that teaching is not worship, and worship is not teaching. And if that is what they're saying, they're wrong. They're worshiping in ignorance to separate those two things, which often are separated. 
you could say to them, you worship what you don't even know. You're ignorant as far as worship is concerned, no matter how sincere you might be, no matter how good the concert is that the band puts on. This isn't necessarily what God is looking for. Three times in the Gospel of John, the Lord stated something up to this point that has a must about it. One is in John 3, 7, you must be born again. The second is John 3, 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And the third is here in John 4, 24, God must, not optional, God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So what we're going to hear is something crucial. There's a critical balance necessary here between these two things. Now, I fully recognize that as Jesus said it, he said it in the order of spirit and truth. I want to reverse the order just because I think for teaching purposes it might be understood better that way. Not that I'm in any way suggesting our Lord got it wrong. But first of all, I want to consider with you worship in truth. Worship in truth. We need to understand the true character of the God who we do worship. We need to know his acts in history to get some insight into what kind of a God is he. What is his mind like? What is he thinking? What is he instructing? What is he exhorting us to do? Otherwise, we can end up pursuing a totally subjective God, a mystical God. As a philosophy major in college, not a good major that I advise most people to take up, but uh, I studied one class called mysticism, the most miserable course I ever took. It just was totally unenjoyable. I guess as a Christian, my worldview was already so shaped by Scripture and by logical categories that I wasn't prepared to deal with the mind of true mystics, people who who really stepped aside from the Bible and had religious visions and ideas and concepts from across many centuries that were just, you know, vague and difficult to pick up. Their writings were tough to read. I just could not get in sync with them. But in many ways, that's what we have unless we have the objective, propositional, stated truths within the context of history that the Bible gives us. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, who call on him in truth, according to truth, according to facts. Now, if we look at verse 22 of our text, Jesus told this woman, again, something that she might have taken to be a very rude comment. We, as a Jewish person, we worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. Wow, that sounds pretty arrogant. Jesus is saying Jews know how to worship, Samaritans don't. Well, that's certainly contrary to the whole spirit of 2014 in which we are told, at least, that every belief system is supposedly equal to everybody else's. That's what all our young people are taught. Good grief, don't you dare judge what somebody else believes and say, I have the truth, you don't. Well, sorry, Jesus just did that. So if I'm talking about the truth system he's talking about, I think I have a right to say that. Jesus was actually claiming superiority for the worship of Israel. Why? 
Well, we do know that Old Testament worship was incomplete, you see. It looked forward to Christ to fulfill it all. The book of Hebrews tells how Christ is the capstone and the the ultimate fulfillment of everything the Old Testament anticipated. So Old Testament worship was only incomplete and anticipatory. It wasn't complete unto itself. Yet, it could be said it was God-ordained. And what they were doing, if they were following the guidebook, the Old Testament, was God-ordained worship, even if it still required Christ to complete it all. It was according to truth. And so, yes, we Christians are, I hope, as arrogant as the Son of God was here, if indeed he was being arrogant, to say, unlike human religions that are quests on the part of man, subjective, mystical, philosophical explorations, trying to find out some truth about God. We don't worship a God of our own design or imagination. We don't worship a God created by an opinion poll. We worship a revealed God, a God who has told us who and what He is in Holy Scripture. We have a body of truth presenting valid information about who to worship, how to approach the Lord, and why we should do it. And we absolutely reject this trite idea that any old way you want to come to God is just fine. You'll probably end up in something like the right place one way or another. No, you won't. We also have to recognize, though, if it sounds like I'm instructing you to be arrogant, there needs to be a great humility as we all recognize that our hearts begin with all kinds of idols. Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. You know, we're churning out idols on a conveyor belt every day, things that we worship that are not God, concepts of God. My God is like this. I like to think, you know, we've talked about this many times before. These ideas have got to be put to death under the sharp scalpel of the Word of God if we're going to worship according to truth, not just the ideas of some other religion, but the notions of Christians who have wrongly formed ideas of God ourselves. Psalm 29, verse 2, calls us, Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. That's implying the true vision of God is something rather other than what I begin with in my own mind. And so, Ever since the 16th century Reformation, Christians, some of us at least, have tried to observe what we call the regulative principle of worship. If that's a new thought or a new phrase to you, it's not that hard to explain. The Westminster Confession of Faith has a statement of it in chapter 21. Here's what it says, quote, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is that instituted by Himself and is limited by his revealed will. So he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations or devices of men or in any way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Revelation rules, not the book of Revelation, but the Bible as Revelation rules worship. If it gives us a clear instruction or example or precept or principle about what to do in worship, we follow that. If we're making up the principles ourselves, we're probably not worshiping according to truth. Now, secondly, and I only have this one other point, 
before a conclusion. We must worship in spirit. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship in spirit. Now, the Samaritan woman tried to set the table for this discussion, saying, let's talk about two buildings, Jesus. You must be a prophet. We've had this ages-old discussion, Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem, and its temple. Which one is right? Jesus pretty quickly said, buildings are irrelevant. God is a spirit. He doesn't receive mail at a particular address or on the map. Buildings are not what count. The infinite personal God is an invisible spirit, real, but he doesn't live in a building. Real because he's revealed himself and made himself known and became flesh even in Jesus Christ. Now, when John 4.24 speaks about the Spirit, I would think most of us would think, okay, this must be talking about the Holy Spirit. After all, chapter 3, it's the Holy Spirit that gives the new birth. We've already seen a, a big role for the Holy Spirit so far in the Gospel of John. And the Holy Spirit, capital S, does have a role in worship. Philippians 3.3 3 has Paul writing, we worship by or according to the Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit of God is our enabler, and we glory in Jesus Christ, putting no confidence in the flesh. Indeed, if you were not awakened and given new birth by the Holy Spirit, you would never be interested in worship, you would never desire to worship, and you could not worship. So the Holy Spirit is absolutely part of this equation. However, the interesting thing is that John 4.24 is primarily saying and most commentators today agree on this, that worship happens within our human spirit, small s. Check out the Bible that you have in front of you. If you're looking at the English Standard Version, the S's are small. If you're looking at the New International Version, I believe it's the same. And most newer versions have it that way because the interpreters are understanding that Jesus wasn't so much emphasizing the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, but our spirit, the faculty of God's divine image in us that allows us to communicate and respond to the living God who is spirit after all in his essential being. What's being said here is, look, there are other intelligent beings on this planet, and, and people are doing a lot of experiments, you know, with animals today and, and figuring out that animals communicate, whales can talk to each other, and porpoises are very intelligent, and chimpanzees and dogs. And most days my wife would say our dog is more intelligent than I am. She doesn't say that in so many words, but she implies it at times. But uh, yes, animals can be very intelligent indeed. They're capable of rather high-level activities. Uh, we got home one hour after the dog's regular mealtime yesterday afternoon, and boy, did we hear about it. From the moment the door opened, that dog knew dinner was delayed. But what we're being told here is that we worship in that faculty, whether you call it your spirit, your soul, the Bible also calls it your heart, roughly synonyms for our purpose here, where God communicates uniquely with men and women who bear his image. John MacArthur has a paragraph about this. Let me quote him. 
MacArthur said it is not a matter of being in the right place, the right building, at the right time, with the right words, the right clothes, the right liturgy, the right music, or the right mood being cast. Worship, he said, is not an external activity for which an environment must be created. It takes place on the inside, in my spirit, before God. That's what the Bible was talking about in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Psalm 51 The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise this. Worship is not primarily about external actions. Certainly, worship in spirit will sponsor some external actions, but it's not the action that matters. I could look at two of you in this room this morning going through the same Worship exercises, responding to the same hymns, the same prayers, the same creed, listening to the same service, and I can guarantee you there are people sitting side by side, one of whom is worshiping from the heart, and one is somewhere miles away from here, not worshiping at all. Their main function of being here for 60 or 70 minutes is to warm a cushion, and that's about it. Jesus, on another occasion, would would blame his own people if you think he only thought his own people were great. In Matthew 15, he blamed his own Israelite people about their worship when he said in 15.8 of Matthew, this people draws near to me with their mouths and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They're going through the motions, and that's it. A Puritan writer very godly man, Stephen Sharnock. Not an easy man to read, but he's full of blessed things. Sharnock said, without the whole heart of man entering in, it is no worship at all. It is only a stage play, a matter of acting a person that we are not. Now, Hear this carefully because we are not calling for nor trying to promote shallow emotionalism in worship. You know, there's a big difference between genuine emotion that is touched by God and His Word and that responds perhaps in a, a, an emotional way with, with tears or, or with joy or with thanksgiving and, and that which is merely manipulated. And skillful worship leaders learn how to manipulate sometimes the emotions of people. What we're hearing here is that the heart, the wellspring of our soul or spirit is going to be affected in real worship. Just look at David in the Psalms. What a range of emotions you find from David. Laughter, tears, despair, delirious pleasure. Remember the time he was dancing in front of the ark and his wife made fun of him and said, look at you, you're ridiculous. You know, she was for one worship standard and David was carried away, the joy of who God was. All those were legitimate responses to God arising from the inward man. Think of Isaiah, a very reserved, well-educated, aristocratic man who tells in Isaiah 6 of entering the temple of God and he saw that tremendous vision of God in the temple 
And he fell on his face, remember, and said, Woe is me, I am undone. This very buttoned up, put together man thought he was going to die in church. So struck was he with the reality of God. Habakkuk, the prophet who started out arguing with God, a vigorous argument in his little book. By chapter 3, verse 16, as Habakkuk contemplated what God was saying to him, he wasn't arguing anymore. He said, my heart pounded, my lips quivered, my legs trembled. He was overcome by God and his reality and his revelation. Jesus taught us here that the proper temples where God is to be worshipped are not places on a certain mountain, not a colonial meeting house versus a Gothic cathedral or anything of that kind. God is spirit. He will be worshipped in our spirit as our spirit encounters the living God revealed in Christ Jesus, God in flesh. So what do we conclude? Jesus said we must do something here. We must worship in spirit and truth. Not, you know, this Sunday go and worship according to truth, and next Sunday come and worship in spirit. You must worship in spirit and truth. Sincere emotion, deep feeling in worship is vital, but it always needs to be regulated by biblical truth. Likewise, doctrinal truth that does not promote spiritual adoration and warm thanksgiving and response to God is a very limited value. You can dot every single I and crossbar every single T of Reformed theology and have the most perfect theology possible and be dead. It's happened a lot of times in church history, I can tell you that. Do I want bad theology? Of course not. But perfect theology without the heart of man responding warmly to God is nothing that pleases God. It's just light without heat. And the opposite, of course, can be heat without light. And both are obnoxious in a way to God. I encourage you to think past the phony worship battles of today. What kind of music is right? You know, we dare have a guitar in the sanctuary. Oh, my goodness, is this song permissible? Uh, whoa. I mean, we have people who have left our, our church when we started using written prayers of confession. Oh, you're becoming a liturgical church. Folks, sorry. We have just as many people who find those prayers very helpful to their spiritual lives and real ways of engaging with God. A famous theologian of the 20th century concluded once, here's what he said, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, and the most glorious action that can happen in a human life. Do you believe that? You actually come on Sunday morning to corporate worship saying to yourself, I am going to the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can possibly happen in my life. I wonder. I hope sometime, once in a while, you would think that. And you would know that we need the heat of inward passion for the triune God and the light of biblical truth. We cannot choose between them. 
One of my heroes in the faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once defined biblical preaching as God's truth catching on fire. God's truth catching on fire. That is the most succinct way I can state what Jesus called worship in spirit and truth. God's truth catching fire that we all might on any Sunday morning or even in our individual worship be able to come with the hymn writer and say to God with all sincerity, my heart is the altar and your love is the flame. Let's pray together. Father, we are imperfect worshipers. We are dedicated to arguing with other people about what right worship looks like, and sometimes our arguments are ridiculous. May we desire nothing but to worship by Jesus' instruction, according to the warmth and life of your Spirit, according to the light and full knowledge and revelation of your truth in Scripture. May this be our ideal in private devotion, in corporate worship, and may Jesus Christ be the one who gets praise. Amen.